2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18. And the word of the Lord says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be here in God's house together this morning. Just a few quick announcements, and then we'll jump into this morning's message. Uh, The first announcement is, on February the 19th at 5 o'clock, there is a dinner for all those past and present in the military uh, at Holly Grove uh, Baptist Church. That's uh, Brother Frank's church. Uh, If you'd like uh, to hold a spot or reserve a spot, come find me. I'll give you the number to uh, hold that spot um, for that dinner. That, again, that's February the 19th at 5 o'clock. Um, uh, just as a reminder, this Wednesday night is our business meeting, so please uh, make arrangements to come to that this e- uh, Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock. We'll have dinner before that, and then we'll c- gather in here for our business meeting. And then for all the parents with children, there is a uh, Valentine party on uh, Saturday. Um, this is coming Saturday at 5 o'clock to 7.30, uh, so please make arrangements for that. And then last, and you'll see, we'll get an update um, from uh, Jeff, the missionary that's in Southeast Asia. Uh, was it two years ago, I think, almost? Yeah, about two years ago, uh, the church took up an offering and uh, gave money to build dorms for uh, a seminary there in Southeast Asia. Those dorms have since been completed, and we'll get an update from him. Uh, that we'll show on, on um, the screen in a few weeks. Um, Rob, do you have anything else to add to that? You know, we say here our um, what our vision, our mission as a church is to to know God and to make Him known, and that's one way that we get to make God known around the world. Uh, we want the gospel message to be proclaimed to all, uh, all the people throughout the world. And so we may not be able to ever get to Southeast Asia, but we're able to give to Southeast Asia and to give to Jeff and to give the, to these brothers and sisters uh, there at the seminary to further the, the work of Christ. So praise God for that. Praise God for your faithfulness and your giving uh, that allows that to happen. And last, I'm going to pray for our youth pastor. We have gotten a resume. Uh, so we'll continue to collect those and pray over those, and then we will, in the next few weeks, uh, make some calls and uh, see who God has for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get started this morning. God, I'm grateful for your faithfulness to us. Grateful for your mercies, how they're new every morning, even this morning, as walking across the yard, across the parking lot, being reminded of your Uh, new mercy, just the ability that you gave me to have breath in my lungs to to make it here this morning. I pray that all those things, God, I'll never take for granted, the small things uh, that I'll never take for granted, that we as a church will never take for granted. 
I pray that you would lead us and guide us this morning uh, through your word. I pray that you would, uh, as you have called us to, and we feel, God, you're calling us to find a youth pastor. I pray that you would find us a youth pastor, and we'd submit our will, our desires, our longings to you, and you would fulfill those. So again, God, bring the right person to us that would love and equip and train our youth uh, to to be missionaries and to be warriors for your kingdom. So lead us and guide us as we humbly submit ourselves to you this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. We, uh, as I said last week, we were going to start either a new series in James or First John. As Jared read this morning, that is not true. Uh, I'll tell you the reason for that here in a moment. Like I thought we were doing James, and he's reading from. Uh, 2 Corinthians. This week, and in the weeks prior, I've just been really praying for our church. Uh, my, my prayer is that this isn't a heavy message, but this would be a message of encouragement to us. But I've really been praying for our church. And um, it's by no surprise our church has been going through a lot this past year. A lot of hurting people. And so I've just been praying to the Lord, God, what would you have me preach and teach? And as I came to that place, um, even this week, and just mulling over First John and mulling over James, and I just felt like that's not where God would have us. I was telling a few people this morning, I was telling Jenny this yesterday, this will be the first time in, since I've preached from this pulpit that I will not walk us through a book of the Bible for the next several weeks. I'm desperately seeking the Lord to, what would God have for us? my hope is by the end of this series that we'd have a place of healing. That God would move in such a way in the people of God that we could really find healing. And that healing would lead us to hope. And that hope would lead us to what Jared said, that we would be missionaries or we'd be ministers of reconciliation to the world. But it all starts with healing. It's what... When you've ever flown, if you've ever flown, it's what they say to you on a plane. You've got to put your mask on yourself first before you can put it on other people. I just wonder, I've been wondering, have we been trying to put the mask on everyone else before we put it on ourselves? And we wonder, we're doing all this work, but nothing seems to be happening. And that mask is, for us, are we so in touch with the Holy Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit that gives breath into our lungs. Are we constantly trying to push it off onto other people without taking it for ourselves? If you were here on Wednesday night, I read and we studied Mark chapter 2. Remember Mark chapter 2 is where those guys are bringing their friend to Jesus. And they see the need that they have in their people, but... I have to believe this, that those people knew enough about themselves and they were taking care of themselves that they were able to take care of other people. And so this morning, I want to walk us through that. But I want to ask some questions to us first. You studied it this morning in your Sunday school hour, and maybe it's the thing that you've been wrestling with in your own life. What is it in your life or what is it in my life? What is it in the life of the church that may be blocking the Holy Spirit from using us in such a way. 
This is what the Apostle Paul has to say about that in Romans chapter 7. You know the passage well, but I'll read the passage to us this morning. He says this, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Anyone relate to that? Like I have this desire to do this, but I keep doing this is what Paul is saying. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law. That it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Can anyone relate to that this morning? Yeah, like show of hands, like let's just be honest this morning. That's all of us in the, in the building. We keep going to the things we don't want to do, but there's something in us that has this desire to go here, but our true desires keep going here. And I want to walk us through over the next several weeks why that is. Because all of us in the room just got honest. Like, I want to do this, but I keep doing this. I don't want to do this. I really want to do that. I think it's because we don't believe what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ today, you have the ability and the desire and the want to do it as well, but I don't think we believe that because we keep going this. So if our actions keep pointing us to this, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe what we say we believe? Because your actions will always show you what you really believe. So my question to you this morning, my question to me, the question for us is simply this, do you know and do you believe in the power of the gospel? Because it's the gospel that allows us to be new creations. And so you may have to ask yourself, what is the gospel? This is what one writer says that the gospel is. This is a pastor in Nashville, Dr. Ray Ortland says this. This is the gospel. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all of his people from the wrath of God into peace with God, with the promise of full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise and the glory of his grace. That is the gospel. The gospel is God sending his son to reconcile the world to himself and giving us, therefore, the power to overcome sin and death. That is the gospel. Do we believe the gospel this morning? Or is it this, church? Has the gospel become one of those tunes that you can kind of just tune out? Do you know what I mean by that? 
Like anyone ever listen to music, but you're no longer listening to music? It's just kind of this low static in the background. It's like there's one day that you were so captivated and captured by the music that you were putting all your attention into the music. And now, years later, it just kind of fades in the background like elevator music. It's there, but it's not really there. You, you get the drift? And my hope and my desire is to say, hey, that same music that you fell in love with the day you surrendered your will and your life over to Christ, it can blare just as loudly today as it did that day when the Spirit of God captured your heart. You see, the problem isn't the gospel. The gospel hasn't lost its power. The problem is we have tuned down the gospel. And we've turned down the gospel. But the power of the gospel is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago when God, through Christ Jesus, raised from the dead. That's the same power that now dwells in you, is what the Apostle Paul says. But do we believe that, church? Do we believe in the power of the gospel and the power of the gospel can save you and save others? Or has it become too familiar that we've forgotten its power, we've forsaken its freedom, and we've lost its joy? Because the psalmist says, restore unto me what? The joy of my salvation. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Right? The power of the gospel is more than just about saving you from hell. It's all that embodies us as believers that gives us life and life to the full. Have we lost that, church? Let us put the mask on ourselves and breathe in the Holy Spirit this morning. I want to read this quote and then I'm going to put up an illustration that I came up with with some help of some friends to walk us through what this looks like for us. But here's my fear and the reason we've lost the power of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel and the joy of the gospel. I think we've forgotten where we've come from. One writer says it this way. In the beginning is where we need to start. Because we'll always find it hard to understand our dysfunction unless we understand what it means to function. What the writer is saying, all of us in the room, if we're honest, we live in dysfunction. God, come on, I, no, no amen to that one? We live in dysfunction because we've forgotten how to function. And how to function comes what Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life. And we've forgotten that, so we've got to go back to the beginning to remember how we were meant to function. He continues on to say this, we won't be able to make sense of our chaos and disorders without seeing what is the true order, what God really looks like. We can never grasp the extent of our depravity until we until we recognize the excellence of our created dignity. 
Let me read that last sentence again. We can never grasp the extent of our depravity. That's our sin nature. Until we recognize the excellence of our created dignity. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to start with your ID. If Jared, if you could put that on the screen this morning. We're going to walk us through how did we get to where we're at living in this function. It starts with our Imago Dei. This is what the Imago Dei means. This is the center. This is how every human being comes into the world. But out of it, we'll see how we get to where we're at in our dysfunction. What is the Imago Dei? What is it, when you read that, do you see, another way to say this, this is your ID. This is your DNA. This is how every one of us were created. Here's what's true about every human being. We're 99% the same as humans. The Imago Dei is this. It's the image of God in all human beings and those who reflect God's created design to be commissioned to carry out the purposes of the world. Every human being, believer or unbeliever, is created in the image of God. We know that in, in Genesis chapter 1. He says, remember what God says to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God says, let us what? Let us create man and create image in whose image? Our image. So every human being on the planet has the Imago Dei, the created order, is planted in you. When that baby is born, the Imago Dei happens. The creation of God happens in the womb. But what happens to, to the created order? What happens to the created order is that we come into a fallen, broken world. The moment that baby is born, even at conception, it enters to a fallen, broken world. We know that through the gospel. It doesn't take long for a baby to realize it's coming to a fallen, broken world. It doesn't take you long to know you live in a fallen, broken world. That's what happened at sin. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1, God created man and God and woman in his own image, and they lived in harmony with God, they lived in harmony with themselves, and they lived in harmony with one another. But then what happened in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? Remember the serpent came in, the serpent began to deceive, the, the woman believed, the man believed, and in that moment... Sin fractured the world. And in that moment, living in a fallen, broken world, the way that we were created was to live in intimacy with God, ourselves, and one another. And when sin happened, that shattered what we would call the salome or the peace of God. And all of us still desire that peace, do we not? There's something that angst in all of us that we long for peace. 
We desire peace. We want peace. Why? Because that's been implanted in you by God at conception. Because the Godhead lives in harmony and peace with one another. But we live in this fallen, broken world, and the peace of God has been shattered. I wonder if we were in the garden that day, how loud that must have sounded. Not too long ago, I got a brand new truck, car, whatever you want to call it. And I had it for 27 miles. You you know, like, I'm riding pretty. Get on 840, 27 miles in, and all of a sudden, a truck decided it wanted to spit rocks all over me. Now, you know when you get a in your car and a rock hits your windshield. There's one of those sounds like crack. You're like, ah, that that hit it. It didn't leave a mark. But then there's that other hit. You're like, yep, that's a crack. That happened. I saw it just like, but I wonder the loudness when Senator the picture, how loud that must have sounded. Paul gives us a brief insight on how loud that sounded that day. He says this about sin and when it happened. It's the same sound that we hear now if we would just put our ear to the ground and listen. This is what sin sounds like. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 22. We know the the whole of creation. Is what? Groaning and labor pain. That's what it sounds like because of sin. The groans of labor pain. The trees do it. The flowers do it. The grass does it. We do it. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. We're groaning for something. He goes on to say in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly we await for adoption the redemption of our bodies because we know that's not how we were created so we come with the id the image of god we're born into this fall and broken world and what happens out of living in a fall and broken world comes this place that we would call shame remember what it says in genesis chapter 2 Verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. Genesis chapter 3 says they took of the fruit and they ate it and they hid themselves in shame. We do that ourselves. We have all sinned, have we not? And in our sin, we have toxic shame. If you have a dog, even dogs do it. Dogs just can't hide it as well as humans. But in some way, all of us in this room, the way that Adam and Eve, that day when they fell into sin, they felt the shame, they took what? It says fig leaves and they tried to cover themselves. That's just their toxic shame. You see, and in that moment, because of their shame, they felt the brokenness of the world. 
broken relationship with God, broken relationship within themselves, and broken relationship with one another. Here's what one writer says about shame. It's a powerful definition, and it's a true definition, because it's what we do in our sin. You could replace the word toxic shame for sin if you'd like. But this is what one writer says. Toxic shame limits the development of self-esteem and causes anxiety and depression and limits our ability to connect in relationship. Is that not what sin does for all of us? Sin is that place in all relationships that we're never really fully known. Like if I just really told you all that was going on in me, you wouldn't what? Like me. If you really knew everything about me, you would what? You would reject me. That's what goes on in our heads. And so we hide. We pseudo-confess. We pseudo-repent. We come to church and what historically we would say is we put on masks. But what is true about us is we've all sinned and we all need the grace of God. No matter how small or big sin is, sin is sin to God. But oh, that's not what goes on internally. We quantify sin. We justify sin. We minimize sin. Why? To make ourselves feel better. But if we were just honest with ourselves, what we're really doing is what the next thing is we're trying to manage relationships. Manage my relationship with God. Anyone ever done that before? This is how it looks like with God. If I do this, you do this. If I just have enough quiet time, enough prayer time with God, then God will like me a little bit more. Am I, am I truthful? Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but that's what we do. That's how we live out our lives. We manage relationships. And we manage relationships in the church. Let me say that again. We manage relationships in the church. If I just told them the truth about what was going on me. They wouldn't like me, so I got to manage this. I see sin in your life, but I can't really tell you the sin I see because I don't want you not to like me. And I can't really tell them how hurt, it, how hurt I really am because if I really tell them how hurt I am, then they're going to think there's something wrong with me. I can't really tell them how sad I am and how broken I am because then they're going to try to fix me. So we get into this managing of relationships. Well, we know from God's design, we are always meant for relationship. We weren't meant to manage relationship. You do it in your marriages, I promise. You do it in every relationship. You and I manage relationships. It looks this way. The psychology of it is this. The terms would be this. Jerry, you would know these words. Codependency. That's a buzzword. Codependency is simply this. I'll do whatever it takes 
to maintain and keep the relationship at all costs. Any takers on that? I won't really tell them the truth. I'll manage the relationship because I'm too afraid if I tell them the truth, they're going to leave me. I just won't tell them the truth. I'll stay quiet. But in staying quiet, I build resentment. The other way is through independency. I don't want relationship. Any takers in that one? Like I'm, That's me. Like I'm not codependent in my relationships. I'm independent. I'm like, I'm out of here. Because I don't want to get hurt. Like part of my story is being abandoned at an airport. So in that moment, at 15, I made a vow. I'll never let anyone close to me. I'll never let anyone what? Hurt me again. So I've lived my life that way. Through the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, I can open myself up to people to be willing to be hurt again by people through relationship. Why? Because the gospel tells me I'm created for a relationship, therefore I need relationship. Which ultimately leads to this. The church calls it idolatry. The world calls it addiction. But idolatry is simply this. It's our attempt to manage our lives without having to do relationship with myself, God, and other people. You ever talk to an alcoholic? A true alcoholic. I'm not, I don't mean someone that like enjoys beer. That's not an alcoholic. An alcoholic, you, if you ever talk to a true alcoholic, they don't really enjoy the alcohol anymore. What they enjoy is the numbing of the pain that they're going through because they've had to manage relationships. Alcoholics don't drink because it tastes good. They drink because it feels good. Or the lack of having to feel. Drugs. Like no 14-year-old boy thinks to himself, man, I cannot wait to be a heroin addict. This is going to be awesome. No boy's sitting on his bed thinking that. But what happens is they shoot up for the first time and they find relief and they're like, I want that again. I want to escape the pain of my life again. It's called idolatry. It's our attempt to get away from God, ourselves, and other people. It's the way we find relief because of this fallen, broken world. This is what the Apostle Paul says about idolatry. He would call it living in the flesh rather than the spirit. Galatians 5, 17, 19 through 21. For the desires of the flesh are what? against the desires of the Spirit. So he's saying back in Romans, the very thing I don't want to do, I continue to do. The things I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do because it's desires that are within me. And the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then 
the Apostle Paul says, this is the work of the flesh. This is idolatry. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is how you escape the world is what Paul is saying. This is how you attempt to escape the pain of the world, the brokenness of the world. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage or anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And he's like, did I not cover it all in the things like these? Just in case I missed any is what Paul says at the end. He says, but I warn you, as I've warned you to before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying in that is this. What he means by inheriting the kingdom of God is not simply that you'll die and go to hell. What he's saying in that statement is that you won't live life in the kingdom and living life in the kingdom is a life of freedom. When you and I live in the kingdom of God, we live free, joyous lives. That's the protection of the kingdom. When you live inside the walls of the kingdom, you live free lives, even though there's an onslaught for your soul. But Paul is saying if you let these things enter into your body and you do these things with your body to find relief, then you'll never enter into the freedom and the joy that Christ has for you in the gospel. So I'd ask you this. What idols do you have and how do you worship those idols? Idols are this. This is the biblical definition for an idol. A man-made image or representations worshipped as deity. Any natural or manufactured object worshipped as a deity. Anything receiving worship rather than the one true God. What idols do you have in your life? What idols do I have in my life? What idols do we as a church have in the life of this church? What are we worshiping other than God? It may not be alcohol. It may not be drugs. It may not be sex. It may not be the hot topics in society. But is it work? Is it religion? Is it tradition? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it recognition? What is it in your life? What is it in my life? What is it in the life of this church that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God? That's an idol. Idolatry is this. So those are idols, and this is what idolatry is according to the Bible. Trusting, serving, and giving worship to something that is not God. I would say to you, to me, do an inventory of your life this afternoon. We're going to walk through that in a few weeks. We're going to do an inventory of our lives. We're going to look at what am I serving and who am I serving? How come? Because it all comes back to this. Do we believe the gospel? 
You see, this outer ring is not how God created us at all. God did not create us for idolatry. God created us to worship Him and Him alone. God created us to do it in fellowship with one another. You, you see how the rings are beginning to shrink back in. You see, when I, I don't worship things other than God, it allows me to now to be in real relationship with other people. Because why? Now I don't have to have toxic shame. I no longer have to be in hiding. I can just be honest with who I am. And I can allow you to be honest with me. It's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. We can carry each other's burdens because it's going to move us into relationship. Which then means once I get into not having to manage my relationships and live in toxic shame, I won't be deathly afraid of abandonment. Because I'll know that God created me for relationship with Him, and He'll never leave me. He made me in relationship with the church, and the church ought never leave me. And then I can be in relationships with people, and they won't leave me. Which then means when I move into those true, honest relationships, I can do what? Be who God created me to be. The Imago Dei. Or as Jesus says in John 10, 10, you may live life and live life to the full. My great fear for us, church, this morning is this, that we're not living that way. Let me read a passage of Scripture over us as a reminder of what James says to us. I want you to answer the questions that he's posing in the text. He asks three questions right out of the gate. Let's answer those for ourselves and for the body. Is anyone among you suffering? Yes. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Not really. Let's be honest. Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Yes. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word sick in the passage isn't about your physical sickness. It's about your spiritual sickness. There are sick people among us. Let us pray, he says. He says this in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, look at the text. We'll go back to Wednesday night. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another. That you may be healed. Why? The prayer of a righteous person has great power. That is working. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, if you were with us Wednesday night. Remember those four men 
were going to Jesus that afternoon. And they saw the sick man laying on the side of the road, paralyzed, unable to move. They believed in the gospel. They believed the power of the gospel. They believed that the gospel could do something to their friend they were unable to do for their friend. Those four men picked up the four corners of that bed and hightailed it to Jesus. They believed not in the man, not in physicians, not in themselves, but in what the power of the gospel through Christ Jesus. And they took their friend to Jesus. And then it says this in the passage. It's an amazing little verse in the passage. It says that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Not the man on the mat. The men on each of the corners. James picks up that in James chapter 5 and says this. The prayer of faith. Who did he just say would need to pray? The elders and the people of the church. He's not concerned about your faith. He's concerned about our faith, the church. The prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous woman, has power to forgive and to heal. Do we believe that, church? Because it goes back to the question I started this morning with and will end it again. Do we still believe and trust in the power of the gospel for our lives and the lives of those in the church? This is the gospel. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrected Christ Jesus, rescues all of his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of the full restoration of his created order forever and ever, all praise of the glory of his grace. Do we believe in the gospel? Do you believe in the gospel? The gospel will give you faith to bring healing to the church. We are meant to live in relationship with God ourselves, and one another. Because we live in a fallen, broken world, it's been shattered. But the gospel brings redemption to a fallen, broken world. And into your life, my life, into the life of the church. May we put our mask on first this morning. Suck in the oxygen from the Holy Spirit to give us life, to have faith, to pray for other people. Let me close with a word of prayer this